So I want to invite you to turn with me in God's Word to Exodus. We are in the second book of the Bible in chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 3 this morning. Kind of a series within a series as we slow down and give our attention to each of God's Ten Commandments in turn. Speaking of uh, generational things, if you are older than probably 30, you're probably old enough to remember airports pre-9-11. Anybody remember what life was like back then, just by nods? Do you remember how you used to be able to go all the way up to the gate with your friends and family members to say goodbye? That was incredible. I remember getting off a plane in San Francisco, walking off the plane, and right there at the gate was my friend to meet me, pick me up. If you're under 30, that might just seem unthinkable to you, unimaginable. Uh, in fact, this would really blow your mind. We used to be able to keep our shoes on at the airport. You get all the way to the plane. Nobody stopped you and made you take your shoes off or your belt off. That kind of freedom really is almost unimaginable today. And in his book on the Ten Commandments, Kevin DeYoung asks this provoking question. He writes, have you ever thought about how much better life would be if everyone kept the Ten Commandments? We may grumble about rules and regulations, but think of what an amazing place the world would be if these ten rules were obeyed. If everyone kept the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need copyright laws, patent laws, or intellectual property rights. We wouldn't need locks on our front doors or fraud protection. We wouldn't have to spend money on weapons and defense systems. We wouldn't need courts or contracts or prisons. Can you imagine what life would be like if people obeyed the Ten Commandments? The law is not an ugly thing. It is good and righteous and holy. Isn't that an incredible thought? Can you imagine? I mean, it would be like heaven on earth, wouldn't it? Don't you long for that kind of life and freedom and safety and security? In fact, Jesus means for us not only to imagine what life would be like if everyone on earth obeyed the Ten Commandments. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. The Ten Commandments reveal to us God's moral will. When we pray that petition of the Lord's Prayer, we are praying, God, would you act by your grace to convert more people so that more people trust you and obey you and walk in your ways on earth? We're praying for that reality. Here's another question to consider. Which of the Ten Commandments... If you could just pick one, which of the commandments, if it was obeyed across the world, would make the biggest, most noticeable, discernible difference on earth? If there's just one commandment that was to be obeyed. I mean, the sixth commandment prohibits murder. So imagine a world without violent crimes. Could you imagine? The eighth commandment prohibits stealing. So suddenly there would be no theft, no burglaries, no shoplifting, no embezzlement, no corruption, no printing of money or government-driven inflation, no theft at all. The ninth commandment forbids false witness. 
No cover-ups, no false witnesses. Just imagine the impact of a single commandment being obeyed. I want to propose to you this morning that the commandment that would make the biggest difference in the world would be the first commandment. The first commandment. It is the foundational commandment. It's not just first like in a list, first this and then comes another one in the series. No, it's, it's the foundation upon which all the other commandments are established. That means if you break this one, you cannot keep any of the other commandments. Or to put it another way, if you break any other commandment, you have first broken this commandment. Because does anybody steal without first wanting something other than God more than they want God? No. Nobody commits adultery, nobody murders, nobody lies, nobody covets without first wanting something other than God more than they want God. J.I. Packer says of the first commandment, true religion starts with accepting this as one's rule of life. And I would say all of your problems in life, all of your problem emotions, all of your sinful behaviors and responses are at root a failure to keep this command. And the flip side of that means the remedy to all your sinful behavior and all your unbelieving attitudes is to obey this command. Again, J.I. Packer writes, whether as persons we grow and blossom or shrink and wither, whether in character we become more like God or more like the devil depends directly on whether we seek to live by what is in the commandments or not. Do you want to grow and blossom or shrink and wither? Do you want to become in your character more like God or more like the devil? Do you want your marriage to grow sweet with grace and mercy and kindness or bitter with resentment and conflict and distrust? Then pay attention to the Ten Commandments and especially to this, the first one. I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me out of our regard for God's Word as we read. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 as well, the prologue to the Ten Commandments. This is God's authoritative Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Father, we receive your word by faith. We acknowledge you as the one, the true, the living, the only God, and we acknowledge your right to lay claims on our lives as you do here in this commandment. Would you give us eyes to see, hearts to believe, ears to hear, and would you, O God, be our greatest desire in all the earth? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is, I believe, the authoritative claim that the first commandment lays on our lives. Abundant life is found in exclusive devotion to the unrivaled God. Let me say that again. Abundant life is found in exclusive devotion to the unrivaled God. 
abundant life. Abundant life is found. That's what God is holding out to us here in this and all the commandments. The first commandment is the key to abundant life. Let's start there. Scripture repeatedly emphasizes that God's law is given for the good of his people. Deuteronomy 6, 24 says, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are today. Do you want to live? God's commandments mark out for us the way of life. He gives these commandments to us for our good. Jesus affirmed the commands of God mark out the way of life and joy when he said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. God's commandments are good and they mark out the path of life. This is implied, as Greg preached last week, in the preface or the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And we just read in verse 2 where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God first liberates his people. He brings them out of bondage into the wilderness, not so that they can wander around and do their own thing and make up their own ways. He brings them out there and he gives them his law. He gives his law to an already liberated people to tell them this is the way of life and liberty and freedom. He gives them his law to keep them free. That's why James can refer to the perfect law as the law of liberty. That's James 1.25. Weld those two words together in your mind when you think about God's law. Law and liberty. It is a law of liberty. Man's law always enslaves people, but God's law liberates. That's why in Psalm 119, David prays, I will run in the path of your commandments, for you set my heart free. Think think about if if you've ever walked across like something really narrow, like say a two by four over a gap, maybe a a brook or a chasm. It's a little nerve-wracking, right? But if you are running on just wide open spaces, you run carefree because you're not worried about falling off. And David's saying, your laws mark out for me this broad, open, expansive place, and I just run in them with freedom. Now look at the phrase at the end of this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. In English, there's potential for some ambiguity here. You you could misread that. You shall not have any gods before me or above me, but you may have other gods after me and below me, which is not what God is saying here. The the Hebrew words carry this sense, before me, as in, in my presence. You shall have no other gods in my presence. No other gods in my presence. Where is God present? In Psalm 139, David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the realm of the dead, if I'm buried in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. So God is present everywhere. He sees all things. He knows all things, including our thoughts and our motives and our desires. So the first commandment establishes the fact that 
that this and all the commandments are about all of life. God is making a sweeping claim over your entire life. Not just you know, the religious part when you are going through religious duties, performing those in the temple. No, all of life, because all of life is lived before God, in the presence of God. And most people, if they are concerned with keeping the law to look good for God and for others, they are content with occasional and outward conformity to God's law. But we see right here that the law is spiritual. It gets down to our hearts. John Calvin says, they think it enough to have carefully concealed from man what they are doing in the sight of God. Isn't that the attitude of sinful man? Content to conceal from man what they are doing in the sight of God. But God rebukes those who think they can hide their sin from him. Through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, God says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. To an idolatrous people, worshiping gods other than the one true God, God says, I see all of that. You can do it in the privacy of your home, and I see it, and it offends me. We live our entire lives in the presence of God. And in this first commandment, God is laying this claim on all of life for your life, for your good, that you might live. And the more consciously we are aware of this reality, the more thoroughly we will experience joy in life as God changes us. This is a life-transforming truth. Think about this with me. If you are enslaved to pornography when no one else is around, you have forgotten that you sin in God's presence all the time. If you are kind and friendly and polite to your neighbors and to your coworkers and to your boss, but short-tempered with your spouse and kids at home, you forget that God is there in your home. If you look busy when your boss is watching, but slack when he leaves, you forget that you work in the presence of God. Children and teens, do you talk and act one way around your parents because you don't want to get in trouble and act a totally different way with your friends? You forget that you live your life in God's presence. And God means for us to live and not die, but to live abundantly. In one of his works, Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, shares this anonymous quote. And it is profound and encouraging and comforting. It goes like this. When you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house, which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter, so you retire into your heart. There you meditate. He is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward, even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. 
flee unto him. He is more inward than your heart. Flee to him. This commandment is about all of life. Abundant life is found in exclusive devotion to the unrivaled God. That's what this commandment calls for, exclusive devotion to God. The the pursuit of abundant life in God should motivate us to pay attention to this commandment, and to that end, we should seek to understand what is it exactly that this command requires and what does it forbid. I think that's a helpful way to work through the Ten Commandments, as the Westminster Confession or the Catechism says on the Ten Commandments, where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So all of the commands, God is prohibiting something and requiring something. Keep that in mind as we work through the Ten Commandments. And and look again at this commandment. You shall have no other gods. What does it mean to have a God? There are tons of other passages in the Old Testament that deal with idolatry and use all kinds of rich and varied vocabulary, these verbs like invoking other gods, calling on other gods, going after them, serving them, worshiping them, bowing down to them, fearing them, burning incense to them, offering sacrifices to them. But to have another god is a very broad verb, isn't it? To have a god. And I think that's on purpose in God's wisdom because it covers everything. And it just leaves no loopholes like I was just looking at it, not worshiping it. I wasn't praying to it. I was just talking to it. Or whatever excuse our vain imaginations make up. I I love this definition from Martin Luther. He says, a God is that to which we look for all good and where we resort for help in every time of need. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Your God is whatever you look to for good. Whoever or whatever you turn to for help in time of need. Or J.I. Packer says it like this. Your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. All of that is subsumed under this word, you shall have no other gods. Your God is whoever or whatever you rely on for your satisfaction and security. Whatever you rely on for your satisfaction, your joy, your contentment, your happiness in life, and for your security, your well-being, which means everyone has a God or many gods. Everyone is trusting something. In this sense, No one is an atheist because everyone is trusting in someone or something for their satisfaction and their security. Everyone has a God. The question the first commandment presses upon us is, is God your God? Is God your God? Is he the one that you look to for all of your good and all of your hope and all of your happiness and all of your security? Or do you have someone or something else besides him? Is your ultimate hope for security in politicians? And in the government, they will secure us. Then that is your God. Or do you trust money to satisfy you and secure you? Psalm 52 says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. It's not a new thing 
for people to set their hope in their material possessions to satisfy them? Or do you seek satisfaction in sexual pleasure or food or drink or leisure and vacations, legitimate pleasures that make miserable gods? One way to identify who or what you are trusting is to ask yourself these two questions. What do I desire the most? What what do I find myself thinking about, longing for, daydreaming about? What do I desire the most? What am I pursuing? What am I living for? And then ask yourself, what do I fear the most? What do I fear losing? Or what, if it happened to me, would seem like my life is over, that would be a living hell to me. That clues us in to who or what we are trusting in. Whatever we desire the most, whatever we fear losing the most, in the first commandment, God forbids you to set your hope on anyone or anything other than him. That's what's forbidden, which means the first commandment requires your exclusive devotion to God. The question is not whether you would call yourself a Christian, whether in taking a survey you would check the box that says evangelical Christian or whatever label is offered on the survey. The question is not whether you say you believe in God, whether you go to church or give to charities. Listen to Martin Luther again. He says, for that is not to have a God if you call him God only with your lips or worship him with the knees or bodily gestures, but if you trust him with the heart and look to him for all good, grace, and favor, whether in works or sufferings, in life, or death, in joy, or sorrow, in all of life, in the good and the bad, do you look to him and him alone for all of your good and all of your security? Do you trust God with all your heart? Is he your highest joy? Is he your deepest delight? That's what it means to have God as your God. And we see this first commandment kind of devotion throughout scripture. Just consider Psalm 73, 25, where the psalmist expresses, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. That is the kind of heart worship that comes when you are obeying the first commandment. There's nothing in heaven I want but you, and I can't think of anything on earth I would rather have besides you and you alone, O oh God. That's first commandment devotion. Psalm 34, 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Or Psalm 16, 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. In other words, in you I lack no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. In you, I lack no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Every legitimate pleasure I enjoy, I enjoy as a gift from your hand. The food that I taste and eat with my family that I love, these are pleasures from you. And since they're from you, then I love you more than all of these things. You and you alone are my desire. Do you trust in and rely on and honor and thank God like that in all of life? Over the last few weeks, Pastor Greg has mentioned how this covenant ceremony at Mount Sinai resembles a wedding between God, the groom, and Israel, God's bride. In every wedding that I officiate, there is a part of the ceremony we call the declaration of consent. It's legally pretty important that the two people there know what they're doing and are there willingly. It's the part we call the I do's, where the bride and groom say at the end, I do. And I ask both bride and groom if they will 
forsake all others and be faithful to each other as long as they both shall live. So far, everybody has said, I do. A marriage is an exclusive relationship. It is a closed covenant. There is no room for, idol, or for rivals in this relationship. That's the kind of exclusive relationship that God establishes with his people in the first commandment. Forsaking all others, will you have God and God alone and be faithful only to him? And this exclusive devotion to God, this is the key to abundant life. Just think about this for a moment. Whenever you desire anyone or anything more than God, no matter how good and right it seems, you will be tempted and often you will respond sinfully if that desire goes unfulfilled and unmet, especially if another person is responsible for thwarting you and getting in your way. Now, let me give you an example. You might be thinking, I just want my children to obey. What's so wrong with that? Well, if wanting obedient children is a greater desire in your heart than your desire to please and honor God in that moment that your children are obeying, you will probably get impatient, lose your temper, and disobey God yourself. You can't want obedient children more than you want God, otherwise you will start to act sinfully when your children aren't obeying. And you're thinking, it's just a good thing, they should obey. But if you want it more than you want God, watch out. You might think, I just want a happy marriage. What's so wrong with that? Think about how you respond when you think that your spouse is ruining your happy marriage. What is wrong with her? Why can't she just take it easy, get along, not cause problems? You start acting sinfully if what you want more than God is a happy marriage. You see how that works? You could go on and on and on with examples. Anytime you want anything, even if it seems like a good and right thing, if you want that more than you want God, watch out. And the remedy then is to resolve now by God's grace that your highest aim and your deepest desire at all times, like in the midst of marriage conflict and while your children are disobeying and while your boss is being unfair, you resolve now, what I want the most, God, in moments like that is to honor you. I want you, and I want to please you, and I want to respond to the sin of others in a way that glorifies you. And if you want that, your life will be changed. Brings us to our last point. Abundant life is found in exclusive devotion to the unrivaled God. This first commandment claims that God is the unrivaled God. You shall have no other gods before me. That does not imply that there are other legitimate options out there, that there are other gods It is a claim of total supremacy and unrivaled superiority and supreme authority and dominion, as God says in Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. God repeats that claim, I am the Lord and there is no other, five times in Isaiah 45. God is the only God. There is none before him, none above him, none after him. All of the superlatives belong to him. He is the highest and the greatest and the best and the most. And the first commandment establishes God then as 
the only source of moral authority. It's fair, anytime people make moral truth claims, and there are a lot of competing moral truth claims in our world today, it's fair to ask, says who? Where does that come from? Where do you get that idea? For moral commands to have any weight or any bearing at all, they have to come from some legitimate authority. And if moral truth claims are nothing more than just statements of personal preference and personal opinion, whether those come from an individual or a whole collection of people, they can be ignored. People are just talking about their own preferences. If, if morality is subjective, if it's all relative, you have your truth and I have my truth, then morality itself is entirely meaningless. Right? A subjective statement is a statement you make that's talking about you, the one talking. So if you think morality is subjective and relative and you say something like, murder is evil, you are not actually talking about murder at all. You're just talking about yourself. You're saying something like, I personally don't like murder, which is like saying, I personally don't like anchovies. Thanks for sharing. Good to know. All right, so moral relativists, which our society is full of, loudly denouncing what they think are bad things in the world, whether it's racism or the patriarchy or climate change or whatever it is, yelling about how bad it all is, like just somebody walking into the middle of Times Square just yelling out, I don't like chocolate ice cream. And we can say, thank you for sharing and just carry on our way because it has no binding authority on anyone. But if there is a transcendent, supreme, universal lawgiver, then his law is binding on everyone. And the first commandment is crucial because it establishes the nature of morality as transcendent and universal and absolute when God claims he is God and there is no other. This is the foundation of all meaningful morality. God and God alone has ultimate authority to issue binding moral commands. These commands then are true for all people in all places at all times because they come from and they reveal the moral will and the moral character of the one true God. Not only do they reveal God as the source of moral authority, but they reveal God as the only one worthy of your devotion and your affection. Throughout the 10 plagues, we saw this is God's passion to be known on earth as the Lord. He alone is the Lord. Remember back in chapter 14 how God said, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that is repeated again and again throughout Exodus. God means to be known not just by Israel, but by the Egyptians and by people from every tribe and nation as the Lord. He alone is God. That's God's global purpose to win the joyful allegiance of all people. And in Isaiah 45 again, God says that he works he does what he does so that people may know from the rising of the sun in the east and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's the grounds of all evangelism and all church planting and all foreign missions that God would be known as God alone in all the earth. And one way to get a sense of just how significant this law is, any law really, is to pay attention to the punishment for violating it. All right, if your parking meter expires, you get a slap on the wrist. You, you pay a pretty nominal fine for that. Not a very big crime. 
More serious crimes carry more serious sentences, all the way up to the death penalty. In the Old Testament, the mandatory punishment for violating the first commandment was death. Let me read. I think this is worth hearing this passage from Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11, where it says this. If your brother, if your own brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods. It's a violation of the first commandment. Which neither you nor your fathers have known some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. I think the fact that that probably sounds kind of harsh and severe to us reveals how Little we think of God. There are certain crimes, aren't there, that elicit a strong revulsion in us, like crimes against children, sexual assault, and violent, gruesome crimes. If we consider those crimes against people who are made in the image of God to be so heinous, then how much more crimes against the God in whose image we were made It's because God is infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy to be trusted and obeyed that turning away from God, distrusting God, rebelling against God is a crime of infinite evil. And since every one of us is guilty of violating this commandment, we deserve death. Thanks be to God who has graciously provided his own son to fulfill the law's demand. Jesus, just marvel at this. Think about how quickly your heart turns from devotion to God to trusting in yourself and in your possessions and in your relationships and in other things. Think about that and then consider that Jesus perfectly obeyed this law so that he could be your substitute to save you from the condemnation you deserve for breaking this law. When Jesus began his public ministry, he spent 40 days in the desert and then he was tempted by the devil. Matthew records in Matthew 4, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus fulfilled the first commandment. Unlike you and me, Jesus never loved or treasured or trusted or worshipped or set his hope in anyone or anything except his Father in heaven. And yet, he suffered the consequence for violating the first commandment that you and I deserve. He died the death that should be paid by idolaters. And then God raised him from the dead and made him the king of the world. And this means, this is important to get as we work through the Ten Commandments. There is a misconception out there where people say something along the lines of, Jesus obeyed so that I don't have to. That's not how it works. 
No, Jesus died for your sins to free you from idol worship so that you could be reconciled to God and now have God as your treasure forever. He died for your disobedience so that now by his grace you can live in right relationship with God and have no other gods before him. That's why Jesus died. Not to free us from the need to worship God, but to free us from worshiping anything other than God and to bring us into the worship of God. And Jesus transformed the first commandment in another incredible way. The way that you fulfill the first commandment today is by treasuring and trusting Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh. He's the eternal Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of His glory, and the exact imprint of His nature, which means the only way to fulfill the first commandment today is to come to Jesus. As He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not enough to just be a monotheist. Jews and Muslims might worship one God, but they don't worship the one true God rightly because they don't worship Him through Jesus, our unrivaled King and Savior. If you don't worship Jesus, you're not worshiping the one true God. And so, in closing, are you relying on Jesus? Are you trusting Him for the forgiveness of your sins and for every earthly good and eternal promise? Is His glory and His fame the greatest treasure of your heart? If not, repent. Turn away from the idols of your heart and Forsake those false gods and turn to Jesus. He will forgive you for all your sin and he will change your desires from the inside out. And if you are trusting in him, then rejoice in God's kindness to you and ask God to deepen your devotion to him and him alone and pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth, that more people would be turned from idols to the true and living God. That is our prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Father, would you bring more people into the joyful submission to, allegiance to, reliance on Jesus, so that the name of Jesus would be exalted from the rising of the sun and from the west. And would you have our devotion? Sanctify us, change our lives, our everyday lives as we desire you and delight in you above all else. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.